I've sat down and read the business book and thought about the principles of the business and what are important and written them down and had this very nice Google Doc with examples of these principles being followed and these principles not being followed. And I put that Google Doc into my nicely organized standard operating folder. And then that Google Doc has sat there for months or years without seeing the, the light of day. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Tropical MBA Podcast. We are decidedly more tropical this week. I have just landed in the great city of Barcelona, Spain, or Barcelona, Catalonia, depending on how you look at it. The combination of great weather, great people, a cosmopolitan city offering with some of the most incredible landscapes and outdoor terrain for hiking, for biking, for going to the beach, going to the mountains. It's incredible to be back here. And I'm looking forward to a wonderful summer with a lot of cool stories of meeting listeners of the pod and ideas share with Ian that'll make it on the show. I actually just arrived from London, another great city, where I had the opportunity to hang out with 100 DC members at DCX London. I want to give a big shout out to the DCX London team for just being such incredible hosts. We had four days of meetups, masterminds, parties, like all different kinds of ways to interact with founders. And uh, I have a notes app on my phone, but I'm still in this habit of just emailing myself when someone says something interesting or that I want to follow up on or that I want to create a podcast about. My inbox is just like a bunch of emails from myself. So (laughs) I'm looking forward in the next few days here to processing them all and doing a full recap episode, I saw a lot of interesting patterns and ideas from high-level founders. So that'll be coming up here in the next few weeks. Let's jump into today's episode. Speaking of all-timers, one of my all-time favorite business thinkers was actually mentioned a few times on the podcast last week by Video Husky founder Justin Tan. And I thought it would be cool to invite him on the show this week to talk about what he's been up to and what he's learned since he's last been on the show. So today's guest, Taylor Pearson, needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. We actually used to work together back in the day. He's probably currently holds the belt for most TMBA appearances. Absolutely love talking business with Taylor. And today he's going to come share with us some lessons that he's learned in just the past few years running his newest business, which is a hedge fund called Mutiny Fund. Hang around. I'm going to read a very exciting financial disclaimer. Before that, Taylor wrote an excellent book called The End of Jobs, which you can pick up at reputable booksellers and Amazon.com. And he also writes an excellent newsletter at taylorpearson.me, his personal website. And he occasionally does operations consulting and business coaching, which was the context in which he was mentioned last week. And I think Taylor sort of is a dual threat in that not only is he an excellent operator and business person, but he also has the ability to recognize patterns, describe them, and deliver them in a way where others can take action on them. And I think that in part is what makes him an effective coach, advisor, and team member. 
So today, among other things, we'll discuss efficiency and problem solving, building more effective team calls, figuring out how and when to break the rules, and more. And one more thing before we jump into the conversation, this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It should not relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. In fact, I'm going to start reading this in front of every single episode. Alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they're not suitable for all investors, and you should not rely on any of the information as a substitute for the exercise of your own skill and judgment in making a decision on the appropriateness of such investments. Heavy stuff to get Taylor Pearson on the show nowadays. <laughs> oh, this is a great one. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's roll it now. You might be the all-time most popular guest on the Tropical MBA podcast. We're going to have to make a ranking. I don't think it's be self-indulgent after 10 years to rank the guests. Anyway, you're back. We have challenged you to create a list of five frameworks, five exercises. You tell me what you're going to call these things. Five things I've learned from messing up in the last two years. That's maybe that's... I love Five it. frameworks of things, ways I lost lots of money that maybe you won't, something like that. What I like about these things, they're really fun to think about. Whether or not you're going to do them or not is a different story. They're fun to think about. They've got cool names. They've got cool concepts. There's lots of charts and graphs and stories of you losing money. And we can do them and make a bunch of money ourselves or not. Since it's a choose your own adventure. Anyway, 80% of those, those of you listening to this podcast currently own a business. Taylor is one of the best in the business. Let's go through these five ways you lost money and so that we don't have to lose money. Sounds amazing. Let's, let's start with number one. So one thing I've, I guess, lost a lot of money time is um, think about like different levels of a business. So I have this idea that there's sort of four levels of a business. There's sort of a cultural level. There's like an expertise level. There's like a standard operating procedures level. And there's like an automation or a machine level. And so any, you know, moderately sized business is going to have some component of all of these, right? You have your newsletter SOP, you have your automations and MailChimp and Zapier or whatever. You have your expertise and problems will happen. The expertise in the would be like the writer, the person who's coming up with the lead or the narrative. You're an accountant, you know, they have expertise in the counter. Yeah, you, you have a, a newsletter writer that maybe the SOP has guidelines, right? Of choose a catchy headline and here's three rules of thumb, right? But someone's got to come down and sit down. Okay, how do we take? you know, this month's news and put it in a catchy headline, right? That you need someone with actual expertise, not just following SOP. And then, yeah, there's a sort of cultural level. So the thing, I've been on both sides of this, I think one level is I'm super focused on all the details. I'm super focused on the automations and the SOPs and you don't have enough expertise or you have the wrong expertise. And so like a classic example, this I'd say is like, the founder starts and they're really good and, you know, maybe they get into the, the seven figures of their business and they don't put on a leadership team. And it's just like um, sort of like a cyborg, right? You have like a person machine mesh where like they have this sort of like army of minions and their army of uh, zaps and Zapier and automations and like engineers can get really stuck in this, right? Because they can like build, you know, they can build out custom scripts and do this whole kind of thing. Uh, but they're just stuck because like they need expertise, right? They need to hire a CMO that scaled this type of brand at this size before and understands like what that looks like. And so you, you, you tend to stall out or burn out, right? Because you're, you're sort of your max cyborg capacity at that stage. 
business as Iron Man suit. And so your injunction to us is to solve the problem at the level where it exists, no more, no less. What do you mean by that? So in that scenario, right, like that person needs to hire a leadership. They need to A, decide they don't want to scale the business and they like the business like it is. And they want, you know, because they enjoy doing whatever the work is. They want to be involved in the day to day. That's great. The business isn't going to grow. It's not going to grow much. And they don't do that. Or you need to hire a leadership team and get out, right? And like the flip side would be sort of like the over-delegation personality type or like the over-delegation kind of like, oh, I'll just give this, you know, I'm, I'm all focused on the I'm going to get the right people and I'm just going to kind of give them the stuff to do. But generally, uh, the types of businesses we're typically talking about, you know, six, seven, low-figure businesses, like there's founders for the most part, the founder-founders is the only one that really sees how all the pieces go together, right? And like you get to a point where there's an executive team where they do, but I like stepping too far back. I think that's like historically been my thing. It's like, I've been like, hey, smart person, we need a new marketing strategy. Go figure it out. And that doesn't work well because that smart person is like missing a ton of context of all the different things in the business that you know, you know, you've talked to 300 customers and you know what their preferences are and you can imagine in your head how they're going to react to certain marketing pieces. Like, you know, these sorts of channels seem to get more responses than these marketing channels. People are on Twitter, they're on LinkedIn or whatever, right? So like, you need to sit down with the marketing person, like go through in detail. All right, like this is why the newsletter is getting a bad open rate. Like these are, you know, these are specific things. And so when you have the problem, you got to figure out is this the right person that's good? And I just need to sit down and like give them the additional context and look at, let's look at the newsletter SOP, what's going wrong there? Or, you know, am I on the other side of this of like, I'm so in the, the details and the weeds that the business is you know, basically suffocating the business of oxygen because we don't have the right sort of level of expertise mm. to be successful. I can relate to both. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I was doing my, um, so my takeaway on, on this point is I'm doing like my, H2 strategy review today and I was working on it all day long and we had I identified nine key challenges the business faced in Q4 and like our level of responsiveness to all of them and you know what the ones we had more success with were the ones that we solved with who rather than what and sometimes I think when we over delegate we can get into what with the wrong who and you've something like that Right, because you can't, you don't actually evaluate, you can't evaluate them correctly because you're not in the details enough. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Or you don't know the answer to your problem yourself and you think that some exploratory set of tasks will bring about a solution. I feel like we've sort of wasted a lot of time in our careers with that particular one. Any final thoughts on this one? No, I think I, I think the the other wrinkle is you know sometimes things exist at multiple levels, right? Like, is the reason the newsletter bad because the person doing it's bad and the process is bad, or is this one of the others, right? So I think you kind of have to just get in there and it's a case by case. What's thing. an example of like solving the problem where it exists, no more, no less? It's like a, the newsletter person is bad, and you keep trying to like fix the SOP and talk to them about why the process isn't going bad. And it's like, no, the problem is you need to fire this person because they're Got bad it. at their job. In that case, you're fixing it the wrong level. Right? You're trying to adjust, like, oh, is the SOP right? Or maybe it's our automation structure. It's like, no, it's like you have, you know, the wrong person is is doing it. Got you. Number two, way Taylor has lost money. This one really jumped out to me. Build your principles into your weekly calls. So like many people, I've sat down and read the business book and thought about the principles of the business and what are important and written them down and had this very nice 
Google Doc with examples of these principles being followed and these principles not being followed. And I put that Google Doc into my nicely organized standard operating folder. And then that Google Doc has sat there for months or years without seeing the, the light of day. So one thing I started doing is we have one of our sort of like the key principles we're working on is this idea of Kaizen, which is from Toyota, which is uh, it's like continuous improvement. It's basically the idea, right? That every time you see a little inefficiency, you know, can we update the SOP? Is there a way, you know, maybe the automation are set up correctly? Maybe I'm not communicating with the person in the department next to me, but trying to find little ways to get 1% better. And so the way we start all our weekly calls is we call it, it's called the 1% better section or 1% better, right? So like the first five minutes of the call, and there's a little form you can fill before the call. You can call yourself out or anyone else out for something that they did 1% better, right? This month, the accounting got finalized two days earlier because we figured out how this thing works in QuickBooks. Not a huge win. It's not transformative to the business. But I think it's it started to send this really clear message that like, that's like rewarded here, right? Like I think you think about like what is culture and like it's this, you know, what is rewarded, what is commented on. Um, and like figuring that thing out that saves 30 minutes, you know, a month for the next three years or whatever, like that's a win, right? Like we're, that's a big successful thing. So that's something we started to build in. And I just noticed people talk about it more, you know, and if you look at uh, like reading the Amazon share, all the letters is a really interesting example, right? There's certain phrases that Bezos uses over it. It's, it's, it's always day one. There's these certain concepts that just sort of repeating over and over and over. And so trying, I think a, a weekly call, like we have sort of a weekly scrum with the team call or like weekly department calls and having like, okay, what are sort of like the core abstract things that are important to us and how can we like actually put those on the agenda, right? Where every week we're talking about this for 10 minutes enough that, okay, we're keeping this top of mind and everyone knows, you know, this is the thing that you're being sort of rewarded or judged by. I love this idea. Well, first off, me and you don't just know each other virtually. Recently went down to the Toyota plant down in San Antonio together on a field, on a business field trip. Oh yeah. We drove our Toyotas. And I like, I've been, I was blown away. If you ever get a chance to go down to San Antonio and see the Toyota plant tour, the thing that really jumped out to me besides like the autonomous vehicles and all the robots and the beautiful cars and stuff is the reinforcement of the culture everywhere. Like the old school quotes on the wall and like the, you know what I mean? Like everything was reinforcing this idea that like we're Toyota, this is what this means. And you could feel the excellence in the room. And sometimes like, I don't know what with founders, you might have run the story enough times in your head that you yourself get bored of it. And that's why I think these messages of being like chief repeating officer is really important for founders. You know, I was speaking with a founder earlier today who is a very good salesperson who turns out that they weren't as successful of a salesperson as the person they trained because they were too bored to go through the process on the sales call. They were just kind of being charismatic salesperson. And then it was actually like sticking to the process. like. The founder internal narrative is so very different from a team member's internal narrative. You might say have a life outside of thinking about the tenets of your business on a day-to-day business. I'll tell you one way I've implemented this directly, Taylor, is for our weekly team call, I have a deck now, and this is a process I've been building out this year, that the first half of the deck is basically our 2023 strategy. And then every Friday, I have a system that I walk through. I'll bring up certain elements of our strategy and remind people. And then I'll add stuff every week. 
So I'm not like rehashing it, but every week, like, you know, a half an hour before the call, I'm building a deck and going in there and repeating myself. Essentially, I'll remind them of what we talked about last week. I'll look for examples, then I'll reinforce key points, talk about some key tenets, and then that's how we sort of open the call. So I totally agree with you there. All right, next one. Choose which best practices you're going to actively break. You got my attention. So I think this was, I'm trying to even remember where this is from, but this idea, like there's certain sort of like cultural attributes or things like everyone can agree is good. Like you should be honest with other people that you work with and don't be overly combative and try to be creative, right? Like, you know, there's sort of generic things, right? But what gets interesting and like, I think where like culture gets interesting is picking the generally accepted best practices that you're like actually going to break. So I'll give like two big examples and some smaller examples. So like Facebook had their slogan, move fast and break things for a long time, right? And so that is a sort of a principle, which is like actively a bad idea in many types of business, right? If you are a nuclear power plant company, move fast and break things is an actively dangerous and harmful principle for you to have, right? But if you're a social network, it's actually an adaptive and useful principle for you to have, right? So I think every business needs to have certain principles which in another business would be seen as, you know, actively harmful or dumb, right? Like you need to figure out like that. And that becomes, you know, you talk about cultures, competitive advantage, that kind of thing, right? Like what are the things you're willing to do that other people aren't willing to do probably for a reasonable purpose? Interesting. So for like a podcast, it could be like, hang out on the very edge of the over, Overton window. Open the right. Overton window and like stick your head out occasionally. And that would be great for a podcast business, be bad for an insurance business. Right. Or a nursery. Yeah, if you're doing some insurance business, right? Like, no, you, <laughs> everything needs to be triple double checked. And I think like Toyota is a good example of this. Like Toyota's thing is uh, Six Sigma quality, right? So it's 99.9999%. So like, that's a bad idea for lots of businesses to have Six Sigma quality because it's expensive to get Six Sigma quality. And you know, it has lots, there's lots of costs, cultural and real and everything else. But if what you're doing is you're mass manufacturing cars and it's the reliability and the brand and reputation. That's a really hard thing to compete with. Do you have something that you guys are doing, implementing this at Mutiny? I think we'd have given like we do, you know, we're sort of in financial services. The sort of like robustness over efficiency is one of the ones we've talked about. So like, you know, I think in, in that example, like I feel like we're a bit closer to a nuclear power plant than to Facebook, right? So there's a number of different trade-offs we've made, places we've moved slower in order to put certain sort of processes in place and then it, not six sigma, right? But we're certainly, there's a lot of components of the business that we're trying to get to, you know, three or four sigma sort of, yeah, accuracy or whatever. And I think, I think the other one we do just from like a branding perspective is it's kind of like a playfully irreverent, you know, our logo is a pirate hat. The colors are sort of like purple and it's quirky. And, you know, we're not wearing suits, you know, the pictures on the website aren't, you know, we're not in suits with like a generic blue background or whatever, right? And like, that stands well, out. Your because, newest fund is called the Cockroach Fund. And our, our newest fund is called the Cockroach Fund, right? That's great. That's acting. You, know, you can imagine like a Bridgewater or so, like something <laughs> where someone come up with like the, the pest fund, right? The rodent fund. Hey, if you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the scenes of the pod. And that's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website. Because it's time for a spanking.
I love it. So choose which best practices you're actively going to break and then make your business about that. That's very cool. This one, do a performance review and track your time and everyone on your team's time for two weeks, twice per year. Tell me how this goes down. This is really fascinating. And for those of you listening along at home, I'm looking at Taylor's schedule. It's very colorful. Uh, so I started doing this for myself, I don't know, six or eight years ago. Yeah, twice a year for one or two weeks, I would like track my time in 15-minute increments. And then I would sit down and I would like put it all on a spreadsheet and categorize the time. So there's a few different ways you can categorize it. The one I most often do is just like assign a relative value to those tasks or whatever, right? So like running to Staples, pick up office supplies, right? I don't know. It's a $20 an hour task. You could hire someone for $20 an hour to like go to Staples and pick up office supplies for you or whatever. So I started this for myself and then we started hiring people and we do, we have like every six months performance review schedule. Everyone, you know, every six months sits down and we look at the last performance review and talk about what went well, what went wrong. And so as a lead into that, I started having people track their time for two weeks. I think especially in remote mm. teams, my interaction with a lot of people is like, you know, maybe I'm talking to them on Slack every day and we have a one hour a week call. They're on like a team call or a department call with me or something. But, you know, like maybe I'm seeing what they're up to, two, three, four hours. I don't have like a ton of visibility into how they're spending their day. So we had one situation where we had someone that was spending like 10 hours a week on some like editing, some for our podcast production, like the way we were doing the producing and the way we were recording it was just generating all this like unnecessary work. And so for like two or three months, we had this person who was spending like 10 hours a week trying to like you know, reverse engineer our bad recording pro- our bad recording practices or our suboptimal recording practices on the podcast or whatever. And I, I had no idea. Like they were, you know, it was, it was two hours a week. Like they were doing other stuff, right? It wasn't like nothing else was getting done. But that's a lot, right? They were spending a quarter of their time on this thing that was a result of like a process inefficiency. How do you do this, Taylor? How do you have them audit their time? So the three most, if people send people use time tracking software, you can use that like toggle. There's a bunch of softwares that do that. or um, just try, I just do mine in Google Calendar, right? So like at the end of the day or just like throughout the day, I'll just like go in and like drag, you know, yeah, 15 minute increments and say, okay, from 11 a.m. to 12.15, I worked on this kind of thing and then put all that in a spreadsheet and assign a value to it at the end of the week. And then we'll go through that together. So usually I have that, I have them do it themselves and like come up with like their evaluation of how they're spending their time, right? Like, is this the right thing to your time on is this not but i find it's really helpful you know, like especially if someone's like moved up in the company right maybe they're still doing yeah. task they've gotten a promotion but they're still doing task and they're actually like hey you need to pass this off to someone because like it made sense for you to do this a year ago it doesn't make sense for you to do this anymore so that's been really helpful and i feel like i have a much better sense for like what's going on day to day with everyone There's a lot of these kinds of like processes that are asserting themselves as facsimiles of what would naturally happen in offices. You know, maybe these time audits would happen. And I don't know, we don't think to do them because it sounds weird or whatever. And it's like, no, it's not weird at all. I mean, I think this is the kind of thing that we love to dig in on. on, And I think, you know, what I found with my team is people want to be efficient with their time. It's like, cool. They care. Obviously, they're doing work. They want to know if it's the right work. So that's very cool. So we'll list them off. We're at four now. Solve the problems at the level where exists no more less, no more, no less. Build your principles into weekly calls. I love that one. Again, it's a simple one that I just started doing. Choose which best practices you are actively going to break. Do a performance review to track your time and everyone else's time on your team for two weeks, twice per year. We're actually doing performance reviews every quarter right now. 
And then finally, create a communication overview and working rules document. Forgot to have your copywriter rework this one. <laughs> create a communication overview. What are you talking about, man? I like so like the next line here. Take spatial context seriously. Now you got me in. Now I'm yeah. in. Hey, <laughs> spatial. Let's talk about spatial context. So one of the things I noticed is like as you start to work with more and more people, you know, you have multiple projects going on. You have different people that are involved in various parts of different projects. And what we were having is, you know, you'd have one project and you'd have some of the conversation about the project was in email. Some of it was in the project management system. Some of it was in Slack. Some of it was happening on phone calls. And so you kind of had this phenomenon like um, the business parable of like all the different people are feeling the parts of the elephant, right? And someone's mm. touching the trunk of the elephant and they're like, it's a snake. And someone's touching the leg and they're like, it's a tree. And someone's touching the ear and they're like, it's a leaf. And like no one sort of has this overview because, you know, the part they can feel and touch and see looks to them like a certain thing. But that's only sort of part of the broader broader elephant. So one of the things we really focus on is like this idea of spatial context, right? If we're talking about a particular task or particular project, we want the spatial context around that thing going on. So like if there's a long email thread with a bunch of contacts in it, don't like break that conversation out and now like have it in Slack somewhere else, right? Like it's in the email thread. Let's get in the email thread. So a lot of that for us is like we tried to move a lot of communication to like a project management system. We use ClickUp. I think they're kind of all the same. I don't have strong feelings, but right. But like you can go back and we can see, you know, this six month project we've been working on. Here's a history of where all those things are. Centralizing meeting notes there, logs means we can see like this is our ClickUp list of the meeting notes. These are things we discuss on these days, you know take it like, you know, jot a couple of notes in there before we check it off. So like we discussed this and this is kind of what we talked about. It's in this project and it's in one place. So we came up, I came up with a communication overview and working rules doc, which is the exciting headline. But basically, these are the types of communication we're having and these are the spaces we're having them in, right? So our five are what I call like long form explanations. Um, so that's like an H2 plan, uh, you know, a major project scope, something like that. So that's happening in Google Docs. And like what kind of communication happens in Slack? What happens in task management system? What happens on phone calls? And then sort of outside of that, where it is and like trying to link up the spatial context across all those things, right? So every six months we go in and we make sure the folders in our Google standard operating folder and the channels in our Slack and the projects in our project management system, all use the same nomenclature and taxonomy, right? So we're talking about, do we call it marketing and sales or are that two separate things, right? Like where do those sort of things go with the idea that if you need to get up to speed on marketing, you should be able, it should be relatively easy for you to see, okay, it's tracked across these three places. There's three projects we're working on. You can see the information around these three projects and those things and having some sort of like centralized version for this. And then also just clarifying where like getting things out of email and out of Slack as much as possible has like been a big priority because I think like Slack is particularly context free, if you will, right? Like there's all this stuff going into a channel. And I think maybe feel like that happens all that's like, oh, I remember someone did something like this in Slack a month ago mm. and I can't, you know what I mean? And like trying to go back and find it. But like even and I think even email is better than Slack for this. But like I think I as much as possible, like a project management system is nice because I can go back and I can see all the comments and all yeah. the closed tasks and everything going on. And everyone else can go back and see those too, right? It's not just in my email. It's not just in my thing. That's a publicly available thing. Like, you want to know what's going on with this project. No worries. You can go see it right here. 
Gotcha. Yeah, for us, that's like each, we have like the strategic document that's like the meeting agenda for each division. And like that links out to all the key project documents, which we do, do in spreadsheets. So like for certain projects, we have spreadsheets called oracles, where it's like all the information about that gets zapped into that. Especially you can have like 15 tabs, you know, and it's like anything you want right. anything that happens about this, like this is the truth. And then for me, the rule for Slack versus email, it's like if you expect someone to have read it, then it has to happen in email. So Slack is like completely temporal and, or I don't know, like, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, that's like one of the rules. Yeah, in our- I deliberately don't use the paid version of Slack because I want the messages to disappear. Because if you want something to stay around, you can't put it in Slack. Because I'm, we're on the free version or whatever, where they automatically delete the messages after three months now. So like, wow, it's not going to be there in three months. For me, Slack is such a useful CRM like approximation because we zap in like all kinds of sales and events and like things that are automated. So like when you search it, it becomes incredibly useful in that way. You probably do a whole episode about Slack hacks. Totally. Cool. Love it. So to review... Five ways Taylor's lost money. <laughs> five ways to improve your business. Five frameworks to consider today. Solve problems at the level where it exists. No more, no less. Build your principles into your weekly calls. Love that one. A little bit of Kaizen. Choose your best practices. Choose which best practices you're actively going to break. Do a performance review and track the time for everyone on your team at least twice a year and create a communications overview and working rules document. Taylor, I love it. Tell us a story of what's going on at Mutiny Fund. I mean, you used to be more of a public figure. I used to, used to be out there doing the podcast rounds, yeah. writing books, writing blog posts, tweeting all the time. Busy losing money doing poor performance reviews. <laughs> uh, yeah, too much going on over here, you know? But yeah, so um, Mutiny is a small boutique fund I started a few years ago and uh, you know it's, we're working on all the stuff I think most small business owners are working on. How you many know? assets do you have in our management? We have about 75 million assets in our management currently and then we... And do you pull down standard 20% fees or how does that work? Our fee structures, so typically it's uh, they do like a number and there's like 2 and 20 is the classic hedge fund structure which is a 2% management fee and then the 20% incentive fee. So if you have 75 million dollars under assets. That would mean that you get $150,000 a year? If we charge, we, we charge one in 10. So we charge half of the two and 20. Okay. No hedge funds really, for the most part, charge two and 20 anymore. That's sort of like the 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Why is that? Just margin pressure. Same thing you see in every industry. More players coming in. You know, if your strategy is officially done, you know, the Renaissance Technologies is sort of the most famous hedge fund in the world. They charge four and 55. Or five, sorry, five and 44, but they make a boatload of money and people want to invest in them and they can afford to charge those fees. So it's a market, right? Like, is your after fee, after tax return sufficient to justify whatever the fees you're charging are? But, but broadly in the hedge fund space, fee pressure has brought all the, the fees down over the last 10 years. So yeah, so we, we charge a 1% management fee and then a 10% incentive fee on net new profits. You guys charge $750,000 a year in management fees. And what does that do? That goes directly into your boat or what? How does that work? No, we pay 
there's like regulatory compliance costs and all that kind of stuff that comes off the top. We have some like back office firms we work at with operational administer stuff. And then we have our team that's like running all the day to day, helping people get onboarded, producing all the statements, annual audits, all that kind of stuff. So it's very much, it's an economies of scale business, right? Like the, the fixed costs are pretty high for funds in general. In general, startup costs for hedge fund, like you would expect it to be in the millions. I'd say that's fairly typical. And that's true for most finance. I mean, it's just a regulated industry, right? Like the same with if you're launching a medical device, pharmacy, right? You just, you're in a regulated industry. You have relatively high startup costs because you have to comply with all the, you have to do all the compliance and regulation stuff of a larger firm on day one, right? So you sort of go into business. So that's a lot of what I've been working on is, you know, trying to make sure we're doing all the, like the nuclear power plant, all the correct boxes are checked. Everything is, the trains are running on time, all that kind of stuff. So Relative to most businesses I've been involved with, the fixed costs are just generally pretty high and like unavoidable, right? Like there's, you can't negotiate on compliance stuff. Like, well, you know, whatever it costs to get it done right is whatever it costs kind of stuff. But yeah, so we're just, we're working on building out and the operational stuff and building out a little team to support it. Do you have goals? Like, do you work that way? Like we're trying to get X number of uh, assets under management and what would represent a success to you guys over the next, say, five years? I mean, we'd like for it to grow. You know, and obviously, that's the goal. We don't spend a lot of time. No, we don't have any sort of like asset and management goals. My partner works more or less full-time just on the strategy, right? Sort of like our equivalent of product is like the investment strategy that we're doing there. So like funds are interesting because it's kind of like, you know, you have a track record. People can see how you do. It's not like, it's not so much like an email marketing software. It's like, oh, this one fits me. This one doesn't fit me. It's a little bit like that, but some of it's just like, you just want the product to be really good. Mm-hmm. And if, you know, the product is really good, then you can kind of be mediocre at the sales and marketing and everything else and like also do fine. So we spend a lot of time on like the product and the just compliance operational stuff. That's what I would say our sort of biggest focus is. But we do want to start doing a little bit better job of sort of telling the narrative. And, you know, we have a particular, what is our philosophy and our thesis and why do we think this makes sense going forward and all that kind of stuff. So um, I spent the last years mostly sort of on the operation stuff, but starting to work more on you know, telling that story and all the, you know, all the research that went into it, we haven't really talked about publicly of why do we choose the strategy and why do we structure it the way we did and all that kind of stuff. Well, cool. We're looking forward to hearing your coming out party then. Yeah. <laughs> Be good. Cool. You can check it out over at Mutiny Fund. Taylor Pearson, thanks for coming on the TMBA podcast. Thanks for having me. Big shout out to Taylor Pearson for dropping by the show. I hope you got a lot out of this one. It's time for me to unpack, read all those emails from myself to myself, uh, and get working on next week's recap episode. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.